Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you heard of the Vinland map? Its acquisition by Yale in the mid-1960s touched off a decades-long controversy over whether it was an authentic Viking map from the 15th century. Its discovery cast doubt that Italian explorer Christopher Columbus was the first to discover the New World. Coming up, we hear from Yale's Beinecke Museum, which owns the Vinland map. Mystic Seaport will also join us to explain why the debate over the map's authenticity helps shed light on 20th century American history. Now, the last time you visited an art museum, did you wonder whether the paintings before you were original masterpieces or duplications? You can join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Later in the show, we'll hear from two experts on the ways museums, collectors, and auction houses confirm authenticity. But first, we're talking about all this today because of Connecticut's connection to what's been called the most valuable art heist in history. Earlier this week, Robert the Cook Gentile, a Connecticut mobster, was to learn what his sentence would be for pleading guilty to weapons charges. Now, what does this have to do with the Gardner Museum heist in 1990? To tell us more, we're joined now by Stephen Kirkjim, a Boston Globe reporter who has covered the Gardner Museum theft since the late 1990s, also author of Master Thieves, the Boston gangsters who pulled off the world's greatest art heist. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lizzie. Before we learn a little bit about Robert the Cook Gentile, tell us again about what happened that night in 1990 at the Gardner Museum and uh, what exactly was taken. Yes, there were 13 pieces that were taken, and it was a very daring and um, very cunning uh, robbery pulled off by two men um, who, after midnight, around 1 o'clock in the morning on March 18, 1990, uh, rang the side door of the employee's entrance uh, at the Gardner Museum and uh, told uh, the two night watchmen, at least the night watchman who was at the desk, security desk, that uh, there was a disturbance and that they had come to investigate it and they wanted to be let in. And the hapless um, uh, uh, security uh, night watchman at the desk uh, uh, broke the protocol and allowed, and he, was, he knew he was not supposed to let anybody in, but never before had a police officer come to the door. But, and so, but he broke protocol and buzzed them in, and that began uh, what turned into an 81-minute uh, he, the two, the two robbers um, uh, tied up the two night watchmen um, and put them down downstairs in the basement. But that began a rampage uh, within uh, the museum, in which they sold thirteen pieces, including my, you know, what is considered at least three masterpieces: two large Rembrandts, including his only seascape, uh, Storm in the Sea of Galilee. And uh, a Vermeer, one of uh, uh, 35, uh, 35 known Vermeers, uh, the concert. And uh, in all, uh, the um, in another large uh, Rembrandt, in all, there's uh, 13 pieces stolen, valued. If you could, if there was a open market for such masterpieces, they're said to be worth uh, uh, 500 million dollars. Um, and uh, so this is a 
known. It's regarded as the largest art heist in world history. Um, and uh, 28 years, the FBI has labored uh, uh, diligently uh, as, as a museum security director of late. Um, and they have uh, chased down every lead, mm-hmm. uh, including into Mr. Gentile's house. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but come up with nothing. In fact, the FBI told me in 2010 that they had not had a single proof-of-life sighting of any of the artwork, which means they've never had anybody come in with a remnant of uh, of, uh, of uh, the stolen pieces to prove they had access to them, or a, uh, a photograph. Now, Stephen, uh, you mentioned there's no open market for uh, these masterpieces that right. were stolen. So right. who would have possibly taken them? Like, What are the leads that you found uh, through all your years researching and covering this story? And, uh, you know, is it is it rare that they haven't turned up this long? It's, ra- it, uh, it's, it's rare that they uh, haven't turned up, but... Uh, masterpieces like this sometimes take decades uh, to show up. The smaller pieces that may be stolen from a uh, from a, a gallery uh, will often be uh, most often be insured, and then there will be a a dialogue that will begin with the thieves and the gallery's in, insurance company uh, to get them back if, at a at a at a much reduced price. Um, but uh, so there is sort of a. Uh, a netherworld that takes place of, of bargaining with uh, with uh, stone pieces, uh, but those are the lesser pieces. These are the major pieces, and these happen very, very rarely. And when they do happen, they can be um, gone for uh, a long time. Twenty-eight years. Uh, we're, I think we're getting now to the to the outer limits of a long time, to the point that they that the. The, they're being missing for such a long time, values the beauty and the magnificence and the importance of the art. So, and, and as far as theories, the one theory that seemed to uh, populate here in Boston, as I did my reporting for my book, was that uh, a stolen art of this nature, a Rembrandt like this, is considered a, quote, get out of free jail card, unquote, in which the bad guys can try to think they can um, begin a process of negotiation with the uh, with the authorities, be the state or federal, in which they can get a, a break, a, pros- a break in prosecution or a break in incarceration uh, for a, a person who's an associate or a loved one. So enter uh, Robert the Cook Gentile again, a, right. a Connecticut resident. You mentioned right. that if you steal something that th- that is this valuable, it can be a get out of jail free card. That nope. wasn't the case for Mr. Gentile. Tell us about how he entered into this uh, fascinating mystery. Well, Gentile had been interested with a very close friend of his, had been up in Maine, who passed away in 2004, but he had been, at least for uh, 10 years before, been interested in getting his hands uh, on on the artwork. Uh, he knew, because there was a $5 million and now $10 million reward for the return, uh, there's a lot, there's another world, or uh, a level of people who would... Uh, Hope to do who would try to do anything to get their hands on the artwork, both to to get the reward or to uh, negotiate a deal with the FBI. And uh, why we do, why do we know this that uh, Gentile was involved is because when they searched his house in 2012, they came upon a copy of the Boston Herald, a competitor of the Globe, uh, with uh, 
from the day of the robbery, uh, the day after the robbery, covering the robbery. And inside that paper was a sheet of paper, was a, was a typewriter uh, sheet of paper. And on that uh, piece of typewriter paper was a listing of all the pieces, the 13 pieces, and what they would get on the black market. Gentile was able to convince the feds when they confronted him with this, because Gentile has long said he has not no knowledge of the whereabouts of the artwork and never had his access to the artwork, but he was always trying to get his hands on it so he could uh, get the get his hands on the reward. And so when they confronted him with this piece of paper, he said, well, if I didn't draw it up. It was drawn up by for me by a, a fellow who knows the art world better than he, and that, that individual is a Worcester car dealer who knows Gentile a bit. And uh, and he confirmed to me that, yes, he had drawn it up. Mm-hmm. But, again, Gentile has long been interested with this, with these paintings. This is totally his account. The feds don't believe him. The feds believe uh, they buy an account told to them by the widow of his best friend, this fellow lived up in Maine, but had very good connections down in the Boston underworld. And he was a more major player in the Boston underworld. And his... This, this friend's uh, widow said to the feds, uh, the FBI, and the museum security director in 2010, that before my husband died in 2004, he gave several paintings to his good friend, Bobby Gentile. And so uh, in 2010, the feds came, the FBI came, knocked on Gentile's door and said, we know you have the paintings. Your widow's, uh, your best friend's widow told us you have them and we want them back. And if you give them back willingly, show them where they are to us, we'll avail you of the what then was $5 million reward. Well, Gentile said, yes, I've been told them his story. Yes, I've been interested in trying to get them, but I never had them. <laughs> well, the feds didn't, didn't, don't believe, didn't believe him, and they set him up in a sting that he fell for. And, um, and so he's, he's been in jail for the last, uh, let's see, mm-hmm. six years. He's been in jail for five of those years. He can, continues to fall uh, for the stings the feds mm-hmm. set up, and he will stay in jail. So he uh, was supposed to be sentenced uh, for pleading guilty to a weapons charge. That right. sentencing was delayed earlier this week. Uh, is this any indication? I mean, would he ever, if he knows where these paintings are, did the federal the federal authorities still think that they could get this out of Robert the Cook Gentile? You know, it's uh, they, you know, it, it's what they have at their command mm. uh, is to try. They're convinced that he does have access somehow. Does have access? He has continued to. Den- despite his continued denials and his lawyer's protestations that the man doesn't know anything. Uh, the, his lawyer, Ryan McGuigan, a very well-known, respected uh, criminal defense lawyer there in Hartford, uh, was, um, um, was, has said to the, the, to the authorities and was on, Gentile was on his deathbed a year ago, September, and a year ago this month, and, and, he, and McGuigan went to visit him at his prison cell and said to him, it's ending now. Get these, give us, get these paintings back in the hands of the museum. They belong in the hands of the museum. And a very compelling quote that he said to him, he said, Bobby, but talking to Gentile, Bobby, there'll be thousands of Gentiles, there'll be thousands of McGuigans coming and going over the years. There's only one Rembrandt. There's only one Vermeer. Give them their paintings back so people can appreciate this artwork. You know, this is historic, painted only once, appreciated millions of times, now for 28 years, missing, gone. 
help them get the, the paintings back, and the reward will go to your family. And Gentile broke down and cried and said, I don't have them. I never had them, and I don't have them. So he has consistently said, in fact, I interviewed him, uh, as, other, as, as uh, um, Ed Mahoney from the Hartford Current has interviewed him, but I interviewed him at his house in 2014 when he was out of jail for a, a bit. And I spent five hours with him uh, tr- uh, trying to uh, convince him that the right thing to do was to, to give the paintings up and how he had, had he got them. But he consistently denied that he ever had any access to the paintings. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Stephen Kirkjian, a Boston Globe reporter who's covered the Gardner Museum theft. Uh, this, again, uh, were... Uh, 13 very valuable uh, paintings uh, were stolen from the Garner Museum in Boston in the late 1990s. Uh, 28 years later, uh, they still, the federal authorities still don't know what happened uh, to these paintings. And Stephen, uh, we heard from a listener says what's really interesting about this whole story is that the most valuable pieces in the Garner Museum were never targeted in this heist. Uh, Your book is titled uh, The Master Thieves, the Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist. These Boston gangsters are to believe that all of them have passed and no one will ever find these paintings. Well, not all the gangsters have, but you know there is a coda within the uh, within the underworld that you don't snitch, and so uh, I think that coda has to be addressed because I do think even the FBI and my reporting on different people who who, who did the theft, uh, those people are dead. Uh, but there are some people within their underworld gangs who know things, and it's those people who have to be convinced that it's in the public's best interest, in their best interest. These bad guys, these criminal members of the criminal underworld, they have families, they have children, they have grandchildren. Those children and grandchildren would appreciate and, and be inspired by these pieces of, of artwork once back on the walls of the museum. It is a sin that these are missing from Boston, from, 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 the, from the museum, and from the art world. And they were put on, the, on those walls in these galleries, the Dutch Room and the Short uh, room, uh, Gallery at the, at the museum, to be by Mrs. Gardner, to, be, to inspire the next generation of artists. And it's it, it's a it's an absolute mm. truth. You mentioned it's a rarity that that took place, but now with them missing for 28 years, our children don't see them, <laughs> our grandchildren don't see them. This is ridiculous. Stephen, you mentioned the reward. I believe that reward's now up to 10 million dollars. It'll expire at the end of this year. Uh, personally, again, you've invested a lot of time in this case. Do you so think that this will be the year? With, <laughs> working on a podcast where the Globe and WBUR mm-hmm. have uh, agreed uh, to partner with a podcast. That uh, with members of WBUR staff, I'm, I'm working on with them, and uh, hopefully we will advance the story. But uh, the mystery, the mystery remains, and uh, my hope is that the the museum and the FBI agree on a public uh, outreach campaign. It it has worked immensely to raise money for um, uh, ALR um, research. And uh, that kind of campaign should be, I can think, can be applied uh, to this case to get the public more aware of the miss of, of, of the value of these missing paintings and the value of getting them back, and also opening up for um, you know the the brighter angels of the members of the underworld who know something but have refused to cooperate because there's nothing in it for them. It is something in it for them. It's their children and grandchildren to appreciate this artwork. 
back on the walls of the Gardner Museum. Stephen, for those of us who have not been to the Gardner Museum, if people go into that Dutch room, they will see these empty frames that yep. have been there for years. Yeah, I, I akin it to what being walking into a wake. You know when you walk into the wake, the, the, the sense of loss from the old photographs, from the, the heavy... Uh, 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 scent of, of the, the flowers. I mean, you're in a place, you have a feeling of loss when you walk into that Dutch room where once stood the magnificence of the of Rembrandt's only portrait of the sea and the Vermeer, you know, and another major uh, Rembrandt. Those paintings are missing. They've been missing for 28 years. It's ridiculous. And I think that there's it's time to have a, a public outreach to say this loss has to be um, uh, remedy. This has to be, uh, p- these paintings have to be brought back. I want to thank Stephen Kirkjian again, a Boston Globe reporter who's covered the Gardner Museum theft since the late 1990s, author of Master Thieves, the Boston gangsters who pulled off the world's greatest art heist. Stephen mentioned he's working on a podcast, the Boston Globe with WBUR on this heist. We'll look forward to it, Stephen. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up next, what methods do museums and auction houses use to detect forgeries? And if something's fake, does that mean it doesn't have value? We'll find out, and you can join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In the art world, how do museums and private collectors know what's authentic and what's not? Sure, if you've got the right training, sometimes the truth is pretty obvious to the naked eye. But for well-done forgeries, how how have advances in technology helped experts decipher whether the art before them is the real deal? Joining us to explain is Leila Amina Dole, art and cultural heritage attorney and professor of art crime law at New York University. Leila, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me this morning. Also with us, Jennifer Mass, President of Scientific Analysis of Fine Art and the Senior Consulting Scientist for the Rijksmuseum. Jennifer, welcome to Where We Live. Oh, thank you so much. I'll start with Layla. I understand you teach a class on art crimes at NYU. Uh, earlier we were talking about the art heist at the uh, Gardner Museum in 1990 in Boston. What are some other really famous examples of, of, uh, of theft in the art world? I think one of the most famous examples deals with one of the most famous paintings of all time, Leonardo da Vinci's The Mona Lisa. It was stolen in 1911. It had gone missing for over two years and eventually was recovered. But the theft actually is what made that painting one of the most famous paintings in the world. That's interesting that it makes it more valuable and more uh, famous. Uh, What about the, the scream? What happened there when there were actually two versions that were stolen? Yeah, there were four versions of the scream that had been made, and two of them were stolen. Um, One of them was stolen from a museum, and eventually that was recovered as well. But again, it made the price skyrocket once it went on the market. So it's interesting that buyers are often more inclined to pay a higher price if if a painting has an interesting history behind it. It's a great story to tell at a cocktail party that it was stolen and recovered. Now, we were hearing from our earlier guests that there's no open market uh, for uh, paintings and other things that are stolen from um, famous uh, galleries. So who are the people that are, that are, that are taking these? Um, I think a lot of art crimes are 
kind of crimes of opportunity, uh, people who aren't necessarily selling the works on the open market, because as you stated, there isn't a legal market for stolen works. And once a work is stolen and it becomes very high profile and known to have been stolen, then it's impossible to sell on the market. So these works go underground. These works are often hidden. And if they are sold, they're sold for a fraction of the actual value. I mentioned that you're an art and cultural heritage attorney. Tell me um, who your clients are. When do they contact you? Oh, I have a mix of clients. So some clients contact me prior to purchasing an object in order to help them with due diligence to ensure that a work isn't stolen or isn't fake. I have other clients that contact me after there's a problem, once they do have a work stolen and they're trying to have it recovered. Um, I also do work with governments and consulting on cultural heritage laws and art laws. So I have a mix of clients and I work touches upon all different types of art crime, whether it's theft or authentication or simple or shouldn't say simple or more, you know, basic contract matters, um, relationships between artists and galleries. Uh, So I, I touch a lot of what's happening in the art world. Uh, Let's talk about forgery. And again, I want to bring in the conversation Jennifer Mass, uh, who is a scientist, president of scientific analysis of fine art and senior consulting scientist for the Rijksmuseum. I understand that you and Layla sometimes work together. Tell me, as a scientist, uh, who who you help in terms of finding out what actually is a forgery or not? I'm somewhat similar to Layla in that I have clients from all sorts of the areas within the art world. I do work for museums and for auction houses, for collectors and dealers. Basically, anyone who's got a question about the attribution of an object, the state of preservation, and the authentication of an object. Can you walk us through the process of of how you decide whether something is legitimate or a, a forgery? Oh, absolutely. It starts out actually pretty low-tech, just looking with the naked eye, seeing if you have any suspicions visually in terms of, for example, the impasto, the way that the paint was applied, and looking for any evidence of oxidation of the canvas that you should expect for a painting that's supposed to be even 50 years old or 200 years old, and then just taking out an ultraviolet light. Um, One thing that I think people don't look at enough is that oftentimes a painting can be expertly faked, but people try to fake the provenance of the painting as well by putting labels onto the back of the work. And so sometimes the pigments that are used on the painting can be perfectly appropriate, but the papers that are used on the fake labels will be from the wrong period, and that can show up very quickly under ultraviolet light. Once we've done those non-destructive methods, then we can do some additional sort of standoff non-destructive methods, such as X-ray fluorescence, which gives us the palette of uh, the work, um, so the different pigments that the artist used, and we can find out if there's any anachronistic materials there. And then it becomes a matter of interpreting the data, making sure that we're looking at something that was original to the painting and is not a later restoration. Because it said when you walk through a museum, about 80% of what you're looking at is the hand of the artist, and about 20% is the hand of the restorer and the conservator. And so there's collecting the data and then interpreting it. Uh, Because we know a modern science uh, has really evolved and and helped you decipher what is a a forgery, the people that are making these foragers uh, who who are doing this, are they also using that to their benefit? 
Oh, they absolutely are. It's become something of an arms race in terms of we get better and better at detecting artist materials, and then they get better and better in terms of using the appropriate materials for different periods so that we won't have something show up that's anachronistic. And so we try to take things then to the next level and say, okay, if you have a pigment and a binder, for example, an oil painting that's been together for 200 years, What's the chemistry that should have gone on between the pigment and binder over 200 years? And if we don't see that chemistry, then we could potentially have a problem as well. So as they get more sophisticated, we get more sophisticated. This is where we live. Uh, Today, we're looking at uh, how uh, private collectors, auction houses, museums uh, find out whether uh, what they have uh, in their collections are authentic. Uh, On the phone with us, Jennifer Mass, president of Scientific Analysis of Fine Art, LLC, the senior consulting scientist for the Reichs Museum. Also, Leila Amina Dole, art and cultural heritage attorney, professor of art crime law at NYU. Uh, Leila, can you add to this this idea, these modern day forgers and, and who they are and the process that they use to try to get away with the crime. I think the story, uh, the stories involving forgers are really fascinating, and everyone loves hearing about these stories because they're very interesting individuals. Many of these people are extremely talented. They're very talented artists who haven't necessarily been successful for their own artwork. So in order to you know, make money and find success, they forge others. And uh, they, there's a gamut of people who forge works. Uh, the very famous case that had occurred within the past decade uh, was a case involving the Nodler Gallery, and the forger involved in that case was an immigrant living in downtown New York City. He wasn't really making much money from his forgeries. Instead, it was the middleman who was making millions of dollars, but he was a talented artist who was able to fake the style of others. Uh, On the other hand, there are forgers who make a ton of money off their works, uh, forgers who have works enter museums and very reputable collections. And I think some of the personalities of these people are, are very interesting. They're fascinating to the public, particularly the ones who are able to dupe the art market and kind of pull one over on the experts. Uh, there's uh, money to be had uh, if they can get away with it, but is there ever an element of these the, the forgers who are highly talented but may have been spurned in the art world? Is this their way of getting back? Oh, definitely. That's definitely one of the reasons that they give for forging. Uh, I'm not really sure if that's just an excuse and it makes them look a little more valiant and interesting or if it really is just financial gain that they're looking for. But many of these forgers have said that. Uh, An example is Hans van Meegren, forger, uh, a Dutch forger from the early 20th century who ended up forging works and the Nazis ended up buying works by him. And one of the, his issues was that he was a talented artist, but he wasn't really recognized for his talent. So instead, he forged other painters. Uh, so that is definitely one of the common excuses given by forgers. Uh, I wanted to go back to Jennifer Mass. Uh, some other really high-profile cases of modern-day forgers, I believe uh, uh, Wolfgang Beltracci, if I'm saying that correctly. What can you tell us about him? Oh, well, this was a fascinating case in which he had done a wonderful job of forging all these different artists and really gotten away with it very successfully until a conservator and scientist colleague of mine in Germany did 
scientific analysis of uh, some of his work and came up with an anachronism. In this case, it was a 20th century pigment called titanium white. And so Beltraki was caught and he ultimately went to jail for his crime. But uh, I think it was fascinating that he was interviewed when he was coming out of prison and they asked him if he had to do his life over again, what would he have done differently? And he said, well, I certainly wouldn't have used titanium white. Mm -hmm. And so the tortures are really keeping us all on their toes in terms of we have to be very careful what we publish in terms of original artist materials and techniques, because then we're really making essentially a forger's handbook. We're telling them what to do next with the next generation of forgeries. And so we find all this great information about objects of art and then have to keep some of it to ourselves. Uh, we are. It's interesting. We the Wolf, the Wolfgang uh, Beltracci story. There's a really great profile that 60 Minutes did. We're going to tweet it out at um, at where we live. Uh, but but do you have a question uh, for uh, these experts uh, when you go to the museum, or maybe you have a, a private collection? Like, how do you know what's real, and is it is it to your benefit to find out the truth? Uh, the eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. If you want to join in the, on the conversation here on where we live, I'm going to take a quick call. Uh, Robert's calling from Milford. Robert, you're on the show. Hi, I have a question for the guests. Do you have any opinions about some of the um, foundations that represent the modern, postmodern pop artists who are accused often of, of denying provenance and denying even the science of, uh, of these artists or the science of proving provenance just because they're, I mean, they're very often accused of um, doing this to protect their own franchise? Okay, great question, Robert. Uh, Layla, can you take that one? Sure. Um... So it's an interesting issue uh, regarding artists and their rights to attribute works themselves. So under the law, generally, artists do have the right to say whether or not they recognize a work as being done by their own hand. And I think it's a really interesting question because it sometimes does muddy the water. Um, There are cases in which artists have created works. And then afterwards, for different reasons, have denied creating them, whether it's a personal reason. Um, I forget which artist it was, but there was an artist who, uh, I think his ex-wife had one of his works, or had multiple uh, multiple works of his, and out of spite, he, he denied creating them. He didn't want her to have something of such great value. So artists ultimately do have that right to deny authorship, to deny attribution, however, it really is up to the market. So if an artist is known to deny attribution, even though the market does recognize the work as being by the artist, there are some very interesting things that can happen with valuation there. The market may still see value, even if it's not as high of a value as if, as in the case when an author does recognize a work. Uh, so it's really tricky. The, the issues of attribution and connoisseurship sometimes really do muddy the waters and become really tricky for valuation of artwork. Now, this idea of uh, private collectors and auction houses uh, making sure that what they have or what they're trying uh, to sell um, is real, um, how expensive is that process to even authenticate that this is indeed uh, worth uh, the millions that they're trying to sell them for? That's Um, an excellent uh, question. Oh, do you want to go ahead, Jennifer, and then I'll have Layla um, respond as well. I think it, it depends very much on how in-depth that you have to go. If you're working, for example, on an ancient bronze and it turns out to be made of an alloy 
that was not available during that period. If it's a Etruscan bronze or a Greek bronze, that can be a very quick process and somewhat inexpensive. But if you have a painting that has a very large palette, it can be weeks, if not months, to do the full analysis, and that can be that can be quite a bit more expensive. Layla, um, I, I think it's interesting that auction houses and galleries really have to balance these prices. Uh, there. The auction houses do sell works for multi-million dollars, but there are also cheaper works that are being sold, maybe a work for $30,000 that might not necessarily go through the same process of the due diligence, of looking at the science, of examining a provenance, um, of having connoisseurship. So I think auction houses and these different institutions do balance the price against uh, you know, the, the price of the work versus the cost of the process. And I, I think that's really challenging. And I think that's one of the reasons that we'll see a lot of problematic works that are valued at under $100,000 because collectors and art institutions won't necessarily do the same level of due diligence for these less expensive works. Now, Jennifer, um, your clients are uh, some of these uh, um, auction houses and museums. Uh, how often when you uh, start your investigation uh, that are you giving them uh, the bad news versus the good? Oh, I hate that question. <laughs> I, mean, I, I do wind up delivering a lot of bad news. I sometimes feel like the opposite of Antiques Roadshow. And in a way, the reason for that is usually people call me in when already somebody's got a question. And so someone from a connoisseurship perspective or maybe a conservation um, question, they've seen a red flag. And so they call me in for confirmation. And so it's actually pretty frequently that I'm delivering the bad news. And there is some shoot the messenger out there. People are not happy to receive this news. And so I try to be as kind as possible in terms of, of breaking the news. And if a, if a museum is small uh, and they might have something that, you know, they've been uh, marketing as pretty uh, well-known and valuable, that could even even tank uh, their institution if it's not something that that they thought it was. I haven't seen that so much in museum collections, but I have seen some private collections. In particular, if a private collector relies on a single dealer and that dealer turns out to be a criminal, then you can sometimes see collections where 70% of the pieces are fake or 90% of the pieces are fake. And that's, that's heartbreaking news to deliver. Jennifer Mass, President of Scientific Analysis of Fine Art and Senior Consulting Scientist for the Reichs Museum. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Also, Leila Amandi Amin Adole, Art and Cultural Heritage Attorney and Professor of Art Crime Law at NYU. Leila, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. It was fun to chat about these issues. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Here's a question for you. Did the Vikings discover America before Christopher Columbus? This was hotly debated at one time after Yale announced it had acquired a 15th century Norse map that showed the coastline. We'll learn about the controversy after the break. You can join the conversation too. 860-275-7266.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, first Harvey, now Irma. On the next Where We Live, we'll get an update on the latest hurricane to threaten the U.S. Plus, we'll find out what hurdles and opportunities face workers over the hill, but not the cliff, with author Lori, Lori Rassis. That's on Monday. Now, today we've been discussing art crimes, including forgeries. Now, forgeries also exist in the academic world, specifically historical documents. Right now, we wanted to look into the mystery surrounding a supposed 15th century Norse map that ignited major controversy when Yale announced its acquisition of this map in the mid-1960s. To tell us more, we're joined uh, from Yale's ISDN studios, uh, Raymond Clemens, curator for early books and manuscripts at the Beinecke Rare Books and Manuscripts Library at Yale University. Raymond, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Vinland map for our listeners who may not have heard about this. Uh, the Vinland map is a uh, map that looks like uh, a 15th century map that has been drawn on uh, two sheets of parchment that have been joined together. And it represents what was thought to be the known world in the 15th century. What's unusual about the map is that it also has, uh, off to the left side of it, um, two uh, known bodies, uh, Iceland and Greenland, uh, and then the coast of Newfoundland. Um, so if this were a, uh, a genuine map, this would be uh, very early proof that there, the Vikings had uh, arrived in the Americas uh, in the Middle Ages uh, long before Columbus had. Um, this map was uh, given to Yale University by Paul Mellon uh, in 1965, and uh, along with the announcement, um, uh, it published a book that provided evidence of authentication, uh, that the map really was a, uh, a 15th century map and uh, not a forgery. Um, that ignited uh, protests uh, in New Haven and elsewhere, uh, largely amongst the Italian-American community uh, that felt that uh, this was being done in a way to sort of undermine uh, Christopher Columbus. Um, and ever since 1965, there have been debates about the authenticity of the map, uh, both historical and uh, scientific. So at one time, it was believed to be authentic. Uh, what was the process to, to, to realize that it wasn't what it, what, uh, it was purported to be? Uh, one line was scientific. And uh, what they did was they took samples uh, from the map in 1972 uh, and sent them to a famous lab in Chicago that analyzed the composition of the inks. Uh, and that test in 1972 indicated that the inks had a modern component called anatase uh, that was only in production since the 1920s, uh, and therefore the ink itself uh, was uh, a modern ink. Um, so one line was scientific. Uh, another line was historical, and that was looking at uh, what sort of maps were produced in the 15th century and what sort of maps people from uh, the Netherlands, in fact, would have used. Um, and in those cases, we find that maps from uh, these regions uh, were not uh, physical, were not, uh, sorry, uh, image maps. They were uh, verbal maps. Um, this was not a culture that produced uh, maps that we understand them uh, and instead simply produced uh, verbal descriptions of their uh, trips. And how long after 1965 was it discovered that this was not indeed a, a true Norse map from the 15th century? Um, there was immediate uh, refutation in the medieval community and the community of scholars that this was not a medieval map. Um, but there was still a great debate about that, and that debate uh, has lingered um, and has continued really pretty much to the present. 
I wanted to bring into the conversation now Nicholas Bell, Senior Vice President for Curatorial Affairs at Mystic Seaport, the Museum of America and Science, or America and the Sea. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, so tell us uh, your interest in the Vinland map and what we can learn uh, from uh, this saga over the decades. Well, so like many people, I learned of the Vinland map uh, through a television documentary many years ago. I saw it. It was a great story. PBS documentary. Uh, <laughs> probably was. I think it was on Nova, actually. And uh, I, like many people, I thought, well, that's really interesting. Didn't think too much about it for a long time. Uh, and then I came to Mystic Seaport last year, joined uh, the museum there, very excited about that, and uh, realized that not only were we very close to Yale, uh, but also that our immediate past board chair was the son of the curator of maps at Yale at the time that the map was acquired, so had a very uh, intimate knowledge of that whole story. And so we said, you know what, let's just go down to Yale and ask them, what if we did a project about this? Could we do that? And we went down and we talked to Ray uh, and the team at the Beinecke Library, and the response was overwhelmingly positive, that this would be a great opportunity uh, to tell the story of this map, to talk about its cultural importance, uh, even though we now believe that it's a forgery, uh, as well as to bring it out into, into a place where a large audience could really see it. Because what's often forgotten in these conversations is that so often we're making these conclusions based on uh, seeing it in a book, seeing it on television, reading about it in the newspaper, uh, and it has almost never been seen by the public. So we're really excited to bring it out and put it in a place where people can see the authentic, <laughs> the authentic, inauthentic <laughs> document. It does it uh, spur on an interesting conversation, uh, Raymond Clemens from the from the Beinecke, uh, because in, indeed it, it turned out to not be a real Norse map, but uh, archaeological uh, discovery that uh, the Vikings did make it to Newfoundland uh, shortly thereafter uh, when that map was discovered. Um, tell us a little bit more about your relationship with uh, Mystic Seaport with this upcoming exhibit and why it's important to talk about this context. So I think the most important thing to take away from this is that even if the vast majority of scholars who have expertise in these fields agree that the map is not authentic, it still had a huge cultural impact in the United States in terms of starting to turn the conversation around to the idea that Viking explorers, Norse settlers, reached the, 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 the shores of the New World long before Columbus. So this is 1965, it's October 1965, the day before Columbus Day when this news is announced by Yale to the world. Uh, you can imagine the firestorm of uh, controversy that ensues. And yet only a couple years prior to that, archeological digs at Lanzo Meadows in Newfoundland had been underway that were finding true authentic archeological evidence that in fact there was a Norse settlement in Newfoundland around the year 1000. And so the irony here is that even though the map turned out to be inauthentic, the story that it told about Norse exploration was largely true. Uh, Raymond Clemens from the Beinecke, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating because unlike the earlier uh, speakers that you had on who talked about a profit motive uh, in, in forging artworks, uh, we really don't know who forged the Vinland map, and that makes it uh, sort of interesting. Uh, why were they doing this? Was this sort of an exercise? Uh, you know, they, the, the sagas mention Leif Erikson's trip uh, to, uh, to Newfoundland. Um, were they simply trying to, you know, reproduce that in a map? Um, we really don't know who forged the Vinland map. And so I think that's one aspect of it that's, that's really fascinating. Um, and then the other, uh, as mentioned, is that it becomes a key document in the 1960s uh, and the sort of unrest and uh, debates that are taking place in America about uh, race and culture. 
Um, and they mirror uh, what's happening today because as Columbus Day rolls around again, um, there will be debates about, you know, was Columbus really the, quote, discoverer of America? Uh, there were obviously people living here for uh, centuries before uh, Columbus arrived. So there's a there's a very interesting contemporary story, and Mystic Seaport has the ability to reach a, a much larger group of uh, people than we're able to at the Beinecke Library, which is uh, an exhibition space, but also a research uh, institution. And uh, Nick is right. The the map itself is kept off display, um, largely for conservation reasons. The, the inks that were used to draw it are very faint. Um, and so it's actually sort of difficult to, to see, uh, and we don't want to expose it to too much light because we don't want to degrade it further. Um, we still want to do analysis on it. We still uh, want to you know, make sure that uh, future generations are able to use technology and uh, perhaps give us better answers about the way the map was forged. Uh, we know that the Norse map is a forgery today, but tell us about what the Beinecke Library is doing, collecting other documents that may be forgeries and what you're learning from them. Yeah, the Beinecke, uh, I know this sounds odd, but actively uh, <laughs> acquires uh all sorts of, of forgeries because intentionally uh, now <laughs> quite intent well hopefully intentionally um, obviously every institution acquires uh, forgeries unintentionally that that is pretty much unavoidable as your earlier segments uh, indicated um, but we're very interested in forgeries because they tell us a tremendous amount about the culture that uh, forges them and about the culture that that believes in their authenticity uh, so for example one of my colleagues Catherine James uh, has been collecting uh, what we call the William Henry Ireland forgeries. And William Henry Ireland uh, died in 1835, and he produced thousands and thousands of what he claimed were original manuscript documents written by William Shakespeare. Um, all of these were, were horrible forgeries. If you look at them today, they, they look awful. They don't look anything like we would expect Shakespeare's hand to look. Uh, but what they speak to is a huge desire uh, in, the, in the 19th century to authenticate Shakespeare, to have something in his actual hand, because, in fact, we have very, very little in Shakespeare's actual hand. Almost everything we have is print, and even the print is uh, often a generation removed from Shakespeare himself. Uh, so that's part of the reason the, the Beinecke uh, collects uh, known forgeries is because of the historical value of them. And, and Nicholas, go ahead. Lucy, I think it's important to add that as, um, as knowledge increases and as generations move on, we come to documents with different eyes. And so one of the first things that we discussed when we got into a room with uh, Ray and the team at the Beinecke was how we could look at the Vinland map today and see it differently than we might have in the 1950s or 60s. And something that I think is really interesting, Ray, that you had described is, is how clearly it appears to us today to be a fake, uh, as opposed to how it might have looked to medievalists 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. Yeah, that's true, largely because uh, most medievalists didn't look at, at medieval maps. Uh, there weren't a tremendous number uh, being produced, um, and so it wasn't really within their ken. And so if you were to ask a medievalist or a Renaissance scholar what does a, a map look like from the period, they probably wouldn't have a great body of knowledge to rely on. And that was because cartography uh, really was an, a nascent field uh, in the 50s and 60s uh, regarding uh, medieval documents. And so, you know, 30, 40 years later, we... We've done a lot of research. Most medievalists have seen maps, uh, color maps, beautiful reproductions. And so we have a much better sense of what a map from that period looks like. I'm really fascinated now to see the Vinland map uh, for myself. And again, we can do that what, next May. Next, Is that when the exhibit's The exhibition will open at Mystic Seaport next May. It'll be open through September. We're really excited to present this and present it in a cultural context that helps understand 
why it had such a huge impact at that moment in 1965 and how it continues to ripple out across different communities. Uh, also, we really hope to provide some of the education that Ray is talking about. So helping people understand how do you make a, a parchment? How do you make medieval links? Uh, what are the tools that we can use to, to educate ourselves as to why these documents look the way they do so that when future examples come up, we're all better tuned to looking for those clues? We're almost out of time, but in terms of this upcoming exhibit at Mystic Seaport, again, the Vinland map will be displayed next to actual Viking artifacts from a partnership with the Swedish Museum. Can you tell us quickly? That's right. That's right. So one of the ways this conversation first came about with Yale is we were looking for something of a bridge between Norse history and American history. And the reason we were looking for that bridge is we had already come to an agreement with the Uppsala University, which is the oldest university in Scandinavia. It's in Sweden. Their museum, the Gustavianum, is putting out their Viking collections for a global tour. Uh, And the first stop on that global tour will be Mystic Seaport next year. So these are artifacts that date as long as 1,000 years to 1,300 years ago that have never left Sweden in history. So we're really excited next summer to bring those out to Mystic Seaport and allow people an opportunity to have a firsthand experience with that material. Well, I want to thank Nicholas Bell, Senior Vice President for Curatorial Affairs at Mystic Seaport, the Museum of America and the Sea. Nicholas, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, Lucy. Also, Raymond Clemens, Curator for Early Books and Manuscripts at the Beinecke Rare Books and Manuscripts Library at Yale University. He joined us from the studios at Yale. Raymond, nice to speak with you as well. Thank you so much. Our show is produced today by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to WNPR producer Lydia Brown and our technical producer, Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.